Hey guys, welcome back to Digital Artcast. Um, thanks for joining me on yet another episode. Um, as we continue our slog through uh, 2020, we are approaching the kind of first point where the, the year starts to move onwards. And with that, we are bringing a whole slew of new artists to talk to. Uh, the artist I have with me today is someone that, um, since we spoke to Scott Campbell not so long ago, we wanted to try and round out the, the trifecta of the, the double fine regime artists. And uh, luckily today, um, this artist has given up part of his day and his time to talk to me about um, the industry and his adventures in it. Um, so we please welcome Mr. Lee Pei. Hi, Lee. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're more than welcome. It's a, a great honor to have you on. Um, definitely for me, because uh, I was speaking to Lee before the podcast started recording and saying how um, the Double Fine team and their adventure and a Kickstarter was kind of like what led me into the, the industry. Um, because that was an interesting documentary in itself where it was so revealing of like your entire process and everything you dived into. Although it seems like forever ago now, right? Like, because it was, it was kind of so early on in the, the, the studio's inception. But um, yeah, like it was such a an open doors kind of policy to just see how everything was dealt with, you know, from Tim's writing to your art jams to, you know, the programming, the scripting, all that kind of stuff. Um, does that seem like long ago now? Does that seem like forever ago or? Yeah, you know, in some ways it does. I think, um, I mean, Double Fine, I think this year will be our 20th anniversary of being around. Wow. And I've been there about 13 years. Um, you know, I came in pretty much uh, after Psychonauts, but the okay. um, Broken Age was, um, yeah, you know, I think the reason why it seems like forever ago isn't, um, is just because the industry has changed so much. You know, at the time, yeah. When we uh, started the Kickstarter, that wasn't a thing for games, really. You know, like a few games had done it, a little small things and yeah. um, smaller projects. So it was it was so strange to think that that was going to be a thing. And for a number of years, you know, Kickstarter was big for games and it really mm-hmm. isn't so much anymore. But um, I think it kind of like it feels like we kind of encapsulated a little era there. So when I think back, yeah. You know, that's why it seems forever ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's just because it had that peak initially, and then it's kind of just tapered out into like a level playing field where, you know, there's so much on it now. But then you guys obviously opened the door for that. That was like, you know, you were the pioneers, the first ones through um, the entry pass, and, and now um, you've kind of set the bar for... Um, although I keep saying this, you know, when I talk about Double Fine, I keep saying indie studios. Like, but then I think although you've stayed independent you've always you know pushed your quality and, and the bar towards AAA at every point so it's hard to call you guys in the studio when you've produced such incredible titles you know even looking back to when you were doing Brutal Legend or like you said Psychonauts you know there was such a because when, when you opened initially the goal was like to be you know pushing in AAA quality and making games of a, a huge caliber that would release on you know Xbox and all these big consoles and now of course um, most recently you know you've came back into the Xbox family. So, you know, it feels like you did taper out on your own for a while, but you still, I mean, did you always consider yourselves like a triple studio? Was that something that was kind of ingrained in your, your, um, the membrane of the studio? Not really. You know, what's interesting is I always feel that uh, double fine in some ways is, is never really bit fit into any of these sort of uh, standard industry uh, ways of thinking about studios. You know, I don't think we've ever really been a triple A studio. I mean, there was, you know, maybe a, a blip on the radar, like in the earlier mid days of brutal legend where, you know, our mm-hmm. team size was maybe, you know, on the lower end of, of a triple a team before they had gotten right. giant, you know, and you know, we had star power and voice actors and licensed music. So it had some of those qualities, but, um, mm-hmm. I think the type of, you know, our goal wasn't necessarily ever to build like, you know, giant franchises so we could just like milk them every year. And, you know, like from a business model or the way that AAA thinks of its franchises, we've never been that. And, you know, um, and I think the way our teams are structured has never been like a AAA team. And, uh, you know, at the same time, uh, our smaller projects, uh, many of which I've led, things like stacking and, and headlander and such are you know, m- many of those were funded by publishers. So it wasn't like true indie in some ways, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, it was, um, uh, you know, I, I would say that like, uh, how would I say that? Like, you know, I think in general, we tried to keep the production values as high as we could on those. So they didn't necessarily have, uh, at least for the time, didn't really have, uh, they were a little different than many of the other indie games, which tended to be at the time anyways, 
mm-hmm. um, lower fidelity 2D only games. And we were still kind of making, you know, uh, these sort of 3D games with um, mm-hmm. a visual richness to them and, and voice acting and things that also didn't really tend to typify indie games at that time. So, yeah. um, you know, we've always been kind of like one leg in, in multiple worlds, I think. Yeah, but I think that's what's good about the studio is that it brings so many different elements, um, you know, to independent making or the way of being creative in, you know, a studio, especially, you know, like you have Day of the Devs now, which, you know, Tim's kind of been championing for a while. And even the thing like Amnesia Fortnite, which is, um, I feel, unique to the industry in a whole and, of course, your studio. Like, I think that's why such amazing ideas come out of that studio because it is just a whole studio of thinking outside the box constantly um is that what originally kind of um attracted you to working in double fine was that why they were kind of on your radar at that point yeah um you know it's funny because i so i uh i was working at crystal dynamics immediately before coming to double fine and um and you know when i first went to that i had been there for about five years i think um and when i went to that studio you know, they were kind of like the last of, or one of the last of the sort of mid-sized studios for the time, you know, this is kind of right. PlayStation 2 era. And, yeah. um, you know, I kind of really liked that side of the studio where the teams weren't too big, you know, they were maybe like 15 to 30 people and they were still doing mostly original IP. They may have been doing some sequels, you know, but like, that's a, that's just like a team size and vibe that I always liked. And, um, over time, you know, most of those studios died and became, uh, you know, franchise machines or working on existing IP. And then yeah. Double Fine, you know, was was quite opposite of that, right? Like they were, um, you know, I always sort of admired their creativity. Like obviously I had played Psychonauts and really enjoyed it. And I um, I had originally interviewed there right, right before they started Brutal Legend and they wanted me to come on board for that. But I uh, wasn't ready to move at that point just in my life. Um, and so I, uh, I passed and then, you know, like I think, uh, after they'd been working on it for a year and a half or so, uh, they wanted me to interview again. And, um, I came in and did that. And, uh, you know, like at that point I was like in a place in my life where I was like, okay, I'm ready to come over here. And they, they had spent most of that time kind of just building the tech for their new engine and working on some multiplayer prototypes. So, you know, the, the game world was still, uh, wide open and, yeah. um, you know, and I, I, it's funny, like I tell Tim this sometimes, like, I'm not really a Tim Schafer fanboy. Like I did like LucasArts adventure games growing up, but I right, actually yeah. played more Sierra <laughs> adventure games. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I do remember specifically full being pretty enthralled with full, full throttle. I and mean, that was probably the first time I remember seeing Tim's name. Um, and I was actually working in the industry already when Grim Fandango came out. Right. And so I remember, uh, you know, I was at a company called Accolade at the time and, uh, someone told me like, Oh, you got to check out this game. This game is so you. Right. And mm-hmm. so I was like, I, I played it and I was like, Oh, I can see why they said that, you know? And, um, yeah. it, and, uh, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I've had this, like, I've always kind of like, uh, and Oh, and in another case that was funny, it was like, there was a while before I went to crystal, I had actually co-founded a, a game studio and we were trying to develop an IP and get Microsoft to sign it for the first Xbox. And, right. um, so we showed them our pitch and the concept art and they said, you know, this is kind of similar to something we just signed from Tim Schaefer. Um, and they wouldn't tell me what it was at the time. Right. And then, uh, you know, maybe like uh, a, a year or so later, I saw an article came out about Psychonauts and Double Fine. And I was like, oh. oh, that's what they were talking about. And there was some similarities <laughs> between the titles. And um, uh, that was really, so it was kind of funny. I felt like there was a number of years where I was aware of Tim and, um, yeah. you know, that. So it was kind of interesting, yeah overlapping anime in the industry because what happens because you're you know you're in the same industry you're in the same kind of area so but then were you when you moved from uh, crystal dynamics was that a hop across the country or were you already in the bay area were you in san francisco at the time or no i was in california still i wasn't it wasn't a a move it was just more of a um uh you know kind of where i was on a project and i had a young kid and and that whole thing so um yeah but yeah no i was i was uh i've been I've been, I've lived in really terrible places my whole life. Let's see, I was born in Hawaii and I lived there and then I've lived in California. So <laughs> I've lived in really <laughs> terrible places that are terrible weather. And yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that's good. So then, so going back before even your art career started in the industry, was this something that um, like you went to school for traditionally? Did you do the whole degree program or, or go to an art school or college or did you, or you self-taught or? Yeah. So um, yeah, you know, I, um, 
I did go to, uh, I do have a degree in painting and drawing, a bachelor of fine art in painting and drawing from San Jose State University. And I, when I was in uh, high school, uh, you know, I did grow up playing video games and, um, and when I was in high school, I still played them a bit. Uh, but I, you know, I was really into writing and really into art and a little bit into programming, but mm -hmm. I, I never really thought about video games as a career, you know, I and mean, this would have been like the mid eighties, late eighties. So it really wasn't. Um, right. and, um, so I kind of decided that I, of those things that I was interested in, I wanted to focus on art. I was really more interested in being an artist. And I went into school for illustration and then pretty quickly refocused. And I was like, you know, I don't really want to do illustration. I want to do fine art. I want to paint. I want to learn about color and focus on that. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, there was no video game classes. There was no, there was no, there was no real 3D software really at that time. I mean, there was like AutoCAD, okay. you know, and yeah. so no one was teaching that stuff at all. Mm -hmm. Um. And when I graduated, I thought I was going to go into grad school. So I kind of took a shitty office job for a couple of years and tried to get into grad school. And that didn't really work out. And a friend of mine um, or someone I knew from high school, it wasn't really even a friend, um, mm -hmm. said, hey, I'm working for this company and we're doing uh, this new thing called multimedia. And um, there's a new technology called CD-ROM. I'm, I'm serious. Like this, this, this makes me sound like I'm 900 years old, um, <laughs> right? And 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 uh, he's like, I remember you always made like really cool, weird art in high school. And uh, you know, do you want to come over? And and we're actually also going to eventually start a gaming division, right? So yeah, that's kind of mm -hmm. that was kind of like my and that wasn't really a game company, but that was like my first toehold into getting into digital art. And um, when I went there. Uh, you know, it was basically like, yeah, I, I did, I just had to teach myself all the sort of software and, um, uh, there was, and it was, it was mainly 2d at that point, but there was, uh, you know, it was like early days of uh, Macromedia director and flash. And, um, oh my during God, my time man. there, uh, mist came out, right. Built on HyperCard, right. <laughs> you know? And, and, um, so it was like, kind of like that explosion of stuff. And then, um, uh, yeah, so that was, that was kind of like first told into, into, I guess you'd say quasi video games, you know, but, uh, yeah. 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 I mean, it's interesting when you talk back about a lot of these things and you know, you're saying, oh, you feel old, I mean, I'm, I'm 34 and I had a career beforehand before I came into games. So, you know, that was my first early iterations of playing Tim's games was on a lot of the Amiga spectrum old PC engine stuff where, you know, mm -hmm. Island was, was ported into different places and, you know, they had daily technical and, um, I mean, like I have a whole, you know, what's kind of drew Scott to me initially when he started talking to him was the fact that I have a, a massive guy brush tattoo on my forearm. And um, he was like, oh, yeah, Tim would love that. And that's also why I clicked. I was like, Tim, I was like, oh, yeah, you're Scott Campbell. So, um, but yeah, <laughs> but, but uh, I know a moment for me, I was definitely freaking out um, that, uh, that I got to meet him. So, but then, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to think back about how, you know, I've seen the influence of how I got into games when I was younger and how you probably got into games or was aware of them. And now how people consume games is almost like, you know, gaming is just, it's part of our culture. It's such a, a stone clad thing. And our day to day, you know, you look at some of the most successful mediums of our time, you know, the guys in Rockstar North, just down the road from me in Edinburgh, um, who make Grand Theft Auto, you know, GTA 5 is still one of the biggest franchise things entertainment media things that's ever existed you know it's in the billions and billions of dollars um you know more than tv film anything like that so i suppose i'm trying to say how do you feel the industry has shifted from kind of its initial inception when you kind of first got in it in the 90s and then where it is now i mean i know that's only maybe a span of 20 years but even then games have accelerated at such a fast pace do you feel like there's a different way you approach making games now as opposed to i mean apart from the logistical stuff and software but do you feel your mindset has changed since you entered the industry and to how you're making like you know psychonauts 2 at the moment you know do you feel that's it's such a different time or such a different way you made games compared to how you first got in the industry yeah maybe a bit you know i mean i, I think when i think about um being a kid and you know being into things like um comics or science fiction or video games uh, mm -hmm. punk music, all heavy metal, that stuff was all fringe. Like none of that was mainstream, right? Like it was yeah. all either like nerd fringe or other stuff. So, um, mm -hmm. and of course I love on one hand, I love that that is part of our culture now in the sense that like, Hey, I can actually make a living doing these things. Right. Um, yeah. 
but I'm sure like most people who were into like weird French stuff <laughs> as a teen or whatever, you know, part of you is also like, you know, like, ah, it's, it's changed and it's not as weird as it was. And, um, yeah. I, you know, but, but it's not, it's not any regret. It's just like a thought that I think is natural to have. So I'm glad that more people can, um, participate in it. And I was talking with someone the other day and I, you know, I remember like life before Nintendo. And the interesting thing about that is what I mean by that is when I was growing up, the games I played were all on like an Amiga or an Atari or, um, you know, those sort of things. And yeah, you'd go to your computer store to buy games and and they had like floppy disks or cassette tapes even and little plastic baggies with a home printed software. Like you could buy games from truly independent creators. And what was really interesting at the time was like those games were um, some of those games were, um, you know, way more diverse in terms of their gameplay and topic than modern stuff. Like you would, it wouldn't be uncommon to walk in and like, Oh, here's a game about, you know, the Franco Prussian war, you know, from the <laughs> point of view of a bird. And you know, that like, that's that they had stuff like that. Cause they're so abstract, the concept of the game and the people who made them were, you know, weird alchemist, uh, you know, computer nerds or whatever. So it was, yeah. it was, it was, it was interesting. And like over time, and then of course I, Atari 26 kind of, uh, 2600 came out and mm-hmm. consoles came out um even in the atari 2600 days there was some uh, quite a bit of diversity in some ways of games although yeah. they started you know losing some of that and you know then the industry collapsed and nintendo came in and turned the whole industry into a child's toy basically yeah. you know and and i'm glad someone saved the industry in some ways but it took mm-hmm. forever after that for people to stop seeing games as christmas presents for kids and yeah. that you know, and that's, I actually really regret that. I kind of always wonder what the alternate timeline would have been if, oh, God, if no. <laughs> you know, like if that hadn't happened, right. If it had just sort of stayed like, uh, I don't know, somehow kept moving forward in a different way because, because mm. I remember early working in the industry, I was always frustrated. It was like every, like my first seven years in the industry is like, all I did was crunch every summer to try and get something out for Christmas. And it was always like, you know, about box placement on the shelf and, and being a Christmas present and then trying to appeal to moms to buy for their kids or whatever. And it was just such a like, you know, I was so not interested in that way of thinking about games. And, um, uh, you know, that's that's Nintendo's fault, really. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, so, they're um, to blame. <laughs> <laughs> they are. But then, but then I think for an accolade, you know, even the guys who, uh, you know, when Zatoro what up, uh, you know, passed not recently and, and people were looking back on his history in Nintendo and how he changed the game industry and how Nintendo did. I think yeah. it's just a general look into the biggest pillars that are in gaming. And I think it's great because, you know, what I think is awesome about working somewhere like Double Fine is that you're in the vicinity of Tim and, you know, he and his team, you know, at the time, obviously he was part of a, a collective at the time, including Ron, where, you know, Point and Click Adventures became another pillar right of the industry and how we define and then you look back into how i think probably what he'd done for the industry was introduce storytelling into you know games as a as a medium because at that point you know there were asteroids there were shooting games there were centipede but then yep. he entered dialogue you know just the human element of it and now you look at you know some of the most successful you know franchises that have came out over the last you know, god only 10 15 years but I remember looking back in a retrospective of um, the whole Telltale game series and Walking Dead and what those guys done, you know, in the Bay Area with storytelling as a medium and how, you know, when their Walking Dead series launched and then they had stuff like Wolf Among Us, things that, you know, initially had been in a a medium for TV, but then it was an interactive medium again because games came in it. So they were almost um, picking that flag up from Tim and flying it again. I mean, do you feel that like, that is a pillar almost of the studio, in fact, is, is storytelling. Is that something that you really put a heavy emphasis on when it comes to making your games? That's a really good question. And I, I you know, I have, um, I have like mixed feelings about story, the word storytelling in games. And, and I say that only because I think, um, I think there are so many different ways to tell a story. And I think people are, of course, are still figuring it out in interactive medium, what that actually means. And I think, um, you know, AAA has uh, adopted basically more trappings of the movie industry. And yeah, they're telling stories in games, but they're mainly telling stories through cutscenes, which, you know, more and more increasingly share movie production pipelines. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like they have beautifully put together and certainly Double Fine, especially Tim games, tend mm-hmm. to have cutscenes in them as well. 
Yeah. But I, I do feel like that's maybe not the most interesting way to approach storytelling. And sometimes that's that's all people mean by storytelling or dialogue trees or lots of talking. But there's also just the idea of, um, you know, games telling stories through not only their mechanics, but everything mm-hmm. in the game, the, you know, the music and the um, and the structure of the environments and, and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. And I do feel like that second that sort of that way of thinking about games holistically as as to maybe world building or telling a story is something that is a a quality of double fine games um Mm -hmm. and something i'm interested in i'm less interested in like super talky things with cutscenes, which i kind of felt like a lot of the telltale stuff was even though they were really well executed and they they i think they did a lot for legitimizing writers and narrative designers in the industry which has been great but um uh you know like i uh, myself, you know, coming from a visual background, I like to think of in games in part, I try to like think of the worlds as, as, as making paintings too. And, um, you know, I, that's my, I guess that's my favorite part about creating games too, is just thinking about all the world building and things that go into that layer as well and how to kind of weave that in and out of the game, you know, without even saying anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is that an interesting even look upon yourself as a retrospective, you know, kind of looking inward from out? Is, do you see yourself more as a game dev than an artist? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think, I think you know, um, I don't think about it too often, I guess. But I, I do feel like I um, a lot of the role that I've filled over the, the number of years is certainly using my, um, you know, my art abilities, but also... Um, I'm pretty good at structuring uh, game development and problem solving and um, know how to be pretty efficient there. So that those things tend to be more in demand, honestly, in some ways. So I, I feel like I, uh, I always try and do what the project needs the most of to kind of move it forward. And um, sometimes that means I, you know, spend a lot of time on visual stuff. Sometimes it means I spend less time on that and more thinking about the game holistically or helping mm. structure the pipeline and tools and process that drive the game. So, um, it kind of it kind of really depends on the project and who else is on the project and what um, you know what as a team you can bring to the project because ultimately it's a team effort and yeah. uh, you know um, I'm flexible uh, but I do mm. say that if I if I was retired and I had money was no concern and I was just making interactive things uh, mm-hmm. they would be like you know very visually heavy and super fucking weird. And, yeah. <laughs> and that's what I would want to do. Right. Like that. So, yeah. so, and, but, but yeah, I think I, I just love the concept of having a world, like for me, games are, and I don't necessarily mean world in the sort of like Marvel cinematic universe, sort of the word like that, which is what everyone sort of thinks about now when you think world building, because yeah. that's where all the money is. I just mean the idea that like somehow, you know, just wandering around in a space in interactive medium is evocative in and of itself, you know, with, with even yeah. like basically very little note or no mechanics, just like moving through, a space is really interesting. And, um, uh, you know, like I love the idea of just thinking about what's in that space and the history of that space and all the things you can encounter in that space. And it's like, you know, guiding a figure, whether it's first person or third person or side scroll or whatever, it's like you're, you know, it's like you're a kid again, kind of imagining moving through this world with an action figure or yourself in this action figure, you know, some sort of avatar. And um, I, I love all that stuff. Yeah, I think it's also when people talk about, you know, some particular games when they say that the main character is the world, is the is the world you inhabit, you know, not actually the, the protagonist. It's interesting to look at guys like um, Hideo Kojima who have just put out things like Death Stranding and people took that game as almost, um, it's like a moving piece of art as opposed to a video game interactive experience mm-hmm. because that whole storytelling element he's done is so at the behest of the player and is so driven by the player that he almost fills these worlds for you to uncover your own narrative and doesn't really want to force you to tell a particular story. Do you feel like that's what you came across when you ventured into something like Stacking, where it was so driven by the player? Was that an interesting look on how you were building those worlds or that narrative within games? Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, um, you know, on, on one hand, um, you know, part of it's just like aligning all the elements in the game. Like, you know, I, I try it um, when I when I lead a project like stacking. I, I want everything to feel um, aligned with itself, you know. So, um, you know, for example, you're you're playing the smallest doll in this in this world of living Russian dolls, the smallest doll alive. Mm-hmm. But you have the ability to like, you know, stack into other dolls and, and temporarily kind of take control of them to solve these mm-hmm. problems. 
Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, there's a theme there about being the underdog. Right. And, and, mm-hmm. and it turns out that like almost always like the kids are solving the, the world of the adults in that game, you know? And, and, yeah. uh, uh, so there's, there's those themes, but there's also just like, because the game mechanics involve like, you know, using these dolls abilities to solve things and you have to stack up sometimes and stack down. There's, um, we had to make the player really aware of the different sizes of the dolls and, and that as mm. just as a game mechanic necessity. And then, yeah. um, then that sort of, you know, that idea was simultaneous with the idea that I wanted to make a game about classism a bit. Right. So you have these, yeah. and a lot of my inspirations were, were, uh, not Russian mythology as much as like, um, uh, you know, things like uh, Tale of Two Cities or Oliver or something along those lines, you know, okay. Dickinsonian yeah, yeah. themes, right? So you have, um, so we're already making aware of these sizes. And so, you know, then we started um, started incorporating stuff into the world where we, you know, you'd go into a bathroom and there'd be like toilet seats, you know, of different sizes, mm-hmm. sort of implying okay. that they've set up you know, if you're a big doll, you get to use this big toilet that's above these small toilets, right? Or um, mm. the park, there were like the benches out in the waiting room of the train station. They were also sorted and stacked by size or the tables in the lounge were that way. And what you notice yeah. is like the big, the big dolls are always tend to be these sort of industrialists or the, or the captains of, mm. of the thing. And the smaller dolls, which tend to do all the work are held down by the bigger dolls are always those medium and small dolls. So, right. you know, that, I was kind of aligning some of the themes with the mechanic itself and telling the same story without ever telling that particular side of the story, you know, because the, the story we were telling was a more straightforward one, just about, you know, Charlie, the main character, um, mm. sort of, you know, as an underdog trying to like save his family from, from these bigger forces. Um, yeah. but the really like moment to moment stories that is, are those other things. And, um, yeah. and that only really worked in with an interactive thing because, you know, um, that's kind of what you need to do as a player. And then there's just yeah. the other sort of theme there, which was just like the answer to all these pu- puzzles and uh, mm. that moved the game forward is always about getting a group of dolls to work together. Right. So yeah. it's a, it's a, uh, I don't know, a little so- a socialist subversion in there as well, you know, where it's not about, um, you know, like finding the one magic inventory item. Uh, and, uh, you know, ultimately these, these dolls are the inventory items and the characters and the people in the world. And, and you fix the problems when they all work together as opposed to, um, against each other. And so, you know, those, um, those themes all kind of, um, those, that's a story that's just told through the gameplay. And, and I, I, it's not always easy to do something like that, especially when your game is less abstract, but I think it's always worth thinking about and considering because that's the sort of subtext and depth of the game that I think is different mm. than, than, a, say a movie or a novel. Yeah, and do you feel? I mean, probably talking more to your writing side than your. Uh, but then again, as an artist, you, you hold many different hats within that that realm of being an artist and writing is one of them. But um, do you feel you know stuff like you mean you know modern day? I think America and other things in the world are are aimed towards people talking about things like stoicism and socialism again as a as a mainstream idea. Um, and of course now with Sanders, I think rolling the polls through the the way of, of of the the successes he's had, do you feel like it's sometimes game's job to incorporate a, a social or economical speech into the games that you're making, or do you feel like that's something that should be left um, out with? Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess the way I think about it, you know, when I was in art school, there was a lot of um, quote unquote political art, and and uh, and, you know, ultimately everything has some point of view in political context and there's no way mm. it doesn't, even if it's yeah. not intentional, it's still communicated. It's still created in a cultural context. So, um, mm. I think that's fine. I personally, uh, I'm more of a postmodernist and not a metamodernist, which means okay. that I actually, I actually prefer subtext. I actually prefer yeah. that, that there's layers of that, that you have to dig through. Um, mm. and I've, because I find the journey to find that meaning is mm-hmm. if it's layered is more open to interpretation and therefore ultimately more meaningful to the player than just like, here's this strong point of view. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's not because I think it's wrong or that games are apolitical or should be. It's just my preference mm-hmm. as an artist in terms of how I like to layer things. And, yeah. um, but yeah, absolutely. Games should have a point of view. Um, mm-hmm. and I also feel like it's okay to play and read and watch things that have a different point of view from yourself. Obviously, People mm-hmm. like to highlight the extremes. Like, I don't really want to play like a pro, you know, pro Nazi, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah, killing, yeah. killing game necessarily. But, but yeah, yeah. there, most things in reality are not that straightforward. And, and I do feel yeah. that like, um, I don't have to share all the same values as the author of a work 
to engage yeah. with it, right? And I can even yeah. find, you know, potentially some of it a little, a little like, whoa, that's a little cringy. I think it's totally fine for people to make their own call on that. I just that's kind of my my cause is uh, yeah know, how I engage with it. Yeah. No, yeah, because we had we just had Alex Bezos on, and he was talking about you know how and we were talking in general because he was talking about how he's you know he's a attending some of Jordan Peterson's lectures and people have an independent view of how he is as a person but then um what you can take away from every walk of life is your own view on how that affects your part of you know your life and how you move forward with that information I mean I think in general you know there's a whole move towards extremism in the world you know you look at Amazon who have just you know run with that show with uh, Al Pacino called the, I think it's Nazi Hunters, where, you know, it's a retelling of something that actually happened in America way back in the day when people reformed alliances to hunt down Nazis within American structures. So I think it's interesting when you look at those juxtapositions of extreme views and how they're influencing every aspect of media now. But I think actually games are probably managed in a way to stay clear of that um apart from a bit you know obvious stuff like wolfenstein where you know that is a retelling of you know killing nazis in a sense but then um you don't see a lot of extreme views in games or i don't feel like i've came across anything that's been very extreme um is there anything you've came across or do you think that um games have took on an extreme view in some places or do you think it's still the same message of having fun with a character in a game yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, most commercial games, or at least bigger commercial games, right? Like, really want to provide um, you know a fun experience, and people mm. find fun different things fun. Like some for some yeah. people, combat intense competitive games are too stressful, um, mm. uh, and for others they're not. You know, for some people, um, games that are dialogue heavy exploration games are too too slow paced and boring and for those are not and i i guess i would just hope that um ideally there'd be a sustainable industry where there could be all those different varieties of games and people could just mm-hmm. you know, understand people prefer different things uh, mm-hmm. i yeah i think whenever it feels imbalanced like it maybe does in AAA, where you know it's like all pushed into really really high production values that are very movie like and most mm-hmm. of it is like you know like lone warrior white dudes with shaved heads neck stabbing people and <laughs> and you know like and then those companies come out and are like, this game isn't political. I'm like, well, actually it is, right? Like actually it's yeah. it's like inherently pro-war on some level and you yeah. know, you're you're basically playing a mass murderer and you maybe throw a few like, you know, ridiculous little statements in there about how, oh, it's just it just happen to be Arabs. You know, you're like, okay, guys, like yeah. it, it, in the world that we live in, there's a political context to that, whether you intended or not. So I mean it's yeah. it's fine if it's not one I want or I want to play. Right. I don't think yeah. they're evil for doing it necessarily, but like, of course, well, let's yeah. not pretend like, um, I guess I, yeah. I, you know, but it is, it is always an interesting challenge. Like if you, you brought up death stranding, you know, like that in some ways that is a super unfun game. Right. And a yeah. lot of grindiness. And yeah, I mean, I think part or all of that was intentional. Um, yeah. but it also like, it's kind of a painful thing to play. That's more like a chore than a game for a lot of people. And yeah. I, I, it's an interesting thing because, you know, like maybe, I don't know how it's sold or, or anything, but it's interesting that, mm. you know, because of his name and because mm. of the big marketing push, mm. they're able to do something like that. Um, yeah. And you know, maybe people still bought it because of the production values, but you know, like picture that game. Well, what if that game was ugly and not marketed, you know, by that? Would it, would people even play it? And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I would hope that, um, you know, there's always going to be a smaller market for things that are harder to digest. I mean, you see that in film yeah. and everything else, but I hope, I hope, I hope there's always a way for that to make money so that people don't have to like live in their parents' basements and not have medical coverage just to make interesting things. Yeah. Right. Which is yeah. kind of where indie gaming is nowadays. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, it depends on the end game, I suppose, because there's guys who have found immense success. You know, you look at the guys at like Supergiant Games, you know, who have made stuff like Bastion and, you know, most recently um, Hades, you know, like mm-hmm. they've had immense success. But of course, they started in their parents' home and built a studio out of that. So, you know, there is definitely, I think, extremes where you have small time indie studios that make no money and the small time indie studios that make like millions, you know, they're rich. So it's, it's a thing where... I think in this world in general, if we had to overarch the entire theme of this conversation is that there isn't a lot of balance in the world anymore. Everything's mm. just one or zero, you know, and I suppose, you know, I don't know if it was something where 
it was inevitable that you guys went back to Xbox to try and you know rekindle that you know that franchise to maybe find a different way of making games again or you know was it something that um i mean this is probably more a studio talk question like you and individually as an artist but then you know you've been part of that uh atmosphere for so long did you feel like it was inevitable you were going to go back to xbox at one point or do you think it was something that was not a last minute decision but something that maybe came up recently where you were then reintroduced to the idea of coming back yeah i mean um you know, I wasn't really involved too much with that decision making process, mm. but my, you know, stuff that Tim has said throughout Double Fine, my time at Double Fine is that Double Fine is an inspiration driven studio. And I know okay. that he, in past when acquisition talks came up, he was always cautious or resistant in that he didn't want to like be brought on to be like, okay, now you are going to just be making connect games or adventure games or, or whatever. Right. He wanted enough flexibility to be able to do that. And so you know, that's kind of difficult for a publisher to buy you for that, especially if you don't have like a single tentpole franchise. Like, you know, right. we might have games that are more popular than others, but we've done a lot of different types of games. Uh, I think mm. um, I think in the case of Microsoft with, um, you know, the sort of industry has been evolving towards platforms now, much like movies have, uh, okay. you know, like Netflix and stuff. And so yeah, what's interesting, I mean, it's kind of up in the air as to how well those models will work or anything, but I think... Yeah. Um, you know, Microsoft, and this isn't an official Microsoft statement. This is just my feeling. No, 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 of course. Right? Yeah, like yeah. they, um, <laughs> you know, my feeling is that one of the reasons they'd be interested in Double Fun is because they probably want to bring a diversity of, of types of games to their streaming platform that are maybe yeah. games that you can only get there or at least distinct enough from other games. And Double yeah, Fine over the last number of years has been able to like pretty regularly produce a lot of different types of games. And yes. I think, um, you know, for us, that might be a really good fit because at that point, the the onus isn't necessarily on coming up with the biggest selling game. It's, hmm. you know, if you look at a platform as a whole, it's like, it's the collection of different things that always show up on a regular basis that might draw you back to that platform. Right. Like not everything yeah. on Netflix is a stranger things, but they're always yeah. launching something. And some of them are like, you're willing to watch and are interesting, even if it doesn't become like the biggest selling game ever, you know? Hmm. And I, I think that's kind of a good fit for us because we make a lot of decisions that aren't necessarily like commercial in nature, you know, mm. and um, yeah. it's, not, it's not that we don't want people to like or play our games, but I feel like, you know, we want our games to feel like they're made by humans to have personality, to be a little different and represent some of our, our, uh, you know, weird ideas and stuff. And um, yeah. that, that could work well in that sort of strategy. So I hope, you know, I would imagine that this was part of the thought process. And, and I think that if so, and it works yeah. out, then I think it'd actually be a good fit for us. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like that's something that the industry, you talk about Netflix and Amazon, they, I think, actively seek out those studios that are different or doing things a wee bit off kilter where they feel that that's going to give them the edge when it comes to pulling people in and making them see that, oh no, it's worth investing in our platform because of course we have this and we have this and we have this thing as well. So um, especially in the last, I think, it's funny to say console generations now because it, the way consoles come out at this point, it's just like an iPhone, you know, like they're just every two years or something else that's, yeah. that's popping out the stratosphere. But um, if you look back at, you know, typically how Xbox was initially marketed when the Xbox One came out, um, even because, you know, Phil wasn't even in charge at that point. Um, the number of exclusives was almost zero. You know, PlayStation was just like every other month throwing you know games that were you know different or, or a bit strange or you know of course everybody talked about how you know when kojima kind of fell out of the market you know sony just automatically just you know snapped them up almost instantaneously before he was even out of konami so um i feel like xbox is now that phil is kind of at the head or the helm of it and he's came from a gaming background and run game studios so he probably feels that like this is what xbox needs is this diversity right is this yeah. um look into games that you can't get anywhere else but xbox so um and of course xcloud is now a thing and that's kind of making waves so yeah i think it makes sense that they'll be looking to bring in you know even uh in the uk where i'm from you know they, they recently acquisited um ninja theory who are now Yep. um or just the game awards you know produced a new hellblade uh, trailer that came out and that was all in real time and it looked incredible um so yeah i think that's why they're looking at these different smaller studios because um they want this diversity in the platform and their portfolio so yeah it's an interesting time but then of course you know the the emphasis for you as a studio is still on making awesome games with great stories and of course psychonauts is you know um 
is rounding out now, right? You guys are probably heading towards or roughly the end goal at this point. Like you're, and I'd imagine the end game. Um, well, can you can't speak to specifics, but you know, um, um, I think it was due out last year. But then, of course, you guys pushed it back. Um, so, is that still like a your daily driver? You still kind of hard at work on Psychonauts too? Is that still kind of the main focus? Um, yeah, I, you know, I I can't. Uh, talk about anything that hasn't been announced yet but you know i think our um that's certainly our our kind of next big push for the studio and i think you know um, for um microsoft as well so yeah uh, microsoft as it relates to double fine and and stuff um but yeah 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 that's that's where that is what most of the studio is currently working with the day-to-day yeah definitely so then you've got this whole career at double fine you know you've came from the kind of og background in games development and that side of the world so um what is it that you would i mean do you have uh, a fulfillment outside of your work where you still want to be creating things artistically i mean i know when we spoke to scott for example you know last he was talking about you know how he still tries to do some shows or has moved you know any you know children's books as well or mm-hmm. you know tries to exhibit or, or do things outside of the norm game production cycle is there stuff that you work on outside of you know psychonauts and double find that also defines you as an artist is there something that you have like a passion project almost outside yeah um i have a few things i like to work on outside i think it's really important for artists to continue to to do projects outside their Mm. professional lives it's very challenging of course because you know like it it takes a lot out of you to do to work professionally in films or comics or games and Mm. um but there's a way there's a there's a a way of just keeping your creativity rekindled when you're doing your own projects and Mm -hmm. you I've always found that there's a feedback back loop between them, you know, like it actually benefits my job that I do personal projects because I might stumble across something that works well, or even just if it's just a technique that I can kind of bring back to my job at times. So, um, right. I, uh, uh, I think it's important. So for me, you know, I, I'm always try it. Like I, I try perhaps futilely to try and maintain as many skill sets as I can, you know? So I'm mm-hmm. always like, I try and do 2d work and 3d work outside of mm-hmm. work. Um, Okay. I have like, um, I try and keep designing things too and writing things. So I, mm-hmm. I do have like, um, a few really long-term ones that I slowly chip away at. Like I have this, uh, board game I've been making for ages called petty land. Uh, and <laughs> it's, uh, it's this, um, uh, it's funny cause I actually started making it and, uh, this is going to make me sound 900 again, but I actually started making it in 1989 and, um, wow. and, uh, I actually had a fully playable version of it like by 1990 or 91 and uh, wow. it never had art, but it was like mechanically playable. And it's this board game, this sort mm-hmm. of eight, up to eight player board game, kind of focuses on eight players. And I kind of put it away and forgot about it uh, for ages after that. And then about five years ago or so, I was like, someone I knew from the time was like, hey, can you bring that game over you made for ages ago? I want to play it. And so, and so I was like, hey, maybe I should actually illustrate this thing now and update its mechanics a bit. And and so on and so forth. So yeah, I've been, I like, I slowly chip away. I, I still occasionally do play tests with that. I have a, it's, I have a whole bunch of illustrations I've done for it. I think it's unfortunate. It's like, it requires at least, I think it's like, I counted, it's like 168 unique illustrations for the cards. So, oh, wow. you know, I've, I've done, you know, 50 or so in my spare time, they're black and white kind of pin and ink. Mm. So they're, it's like, it's a 2d sort of thing and a very different from the sort of work I do at uh, double fine. So, Mm. Uh, that's that's kind of I have that, and then I also just try and um, the last couple of years I've been really into creating art in VR uh, using some of the new VR tools, and that's primarily been three oh, D cool. work. Um, nice. And so it's not. Are you using a uh, medium for that, or uh, yeah, medium, uh, tilt brush, gravity sketch. Um, okay. Uh, you know all those sorts of of products, um, and kind of mm-hmm. mix and mash them and stuff. And so yeah. that's um, that's been fun. And actually, even for my last project I led at Double Fine, which was a game called Rad. I actually brought mm-hmm. the VR pipeline into Double Fine, and we did actually use it for some concept development based on just some of the experimentation I'd done at home uh, in a more oh, cool. just you know, art creation way. So, um, yeah. you know, that's uh, that's I am all, I think it's important to always do that. Of course, I don't I do yeah. shows every once in a while, but uh, I don't I don't focus on it nearly as much as um, say Scott or Bagel. Like usually once yeah. or so a year, I'll have a piece in a group show or maybe a couple mm-hmm. times a year. But um, you yeah. know, it's kind of like. Uh, of the many things I try and maintain, <laughs> those yeah, those course. tend to go away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it does. It does sound like you're trying to spin like multiple plates at once and try and keep them all in the air as you kind of move forward. And I think for me, that was one of the biggest struggles coming into this industry because, um, 
you know, as an engineer, you, you're defined by your job and what you do from day to day. Yeah. And I always felt like uh, picking a specialization, although I have eventually picked, you know, environment art and 3D, but, you know, I felt like if I, if I put that hat on, I could never take it off. And I felt like, yeah. you know, once you're defined by that role, you're always going to be defined by that. But it seems like you don't like the pigeonhole of, you know, I am this, you know, whether it be an artist, a writer, a 3D sculptor, whatever, you know, you like to wear multiple hats. You like to be um, constantly evolving or changing. Is that the right word you would use for it? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I, I, I am... Um... It is something that, you know, I mean, I think, uh, I think teams are best when they have people who are both specialists and people who are generalists. I think, you know, there's, it's nice to have a mix of people on the team. Um, uh, but you know, when productions get larger, um, it becomes uh, difficult to, you kind of do have to specialize more and departmentalize more. It's just the nature of trying to manage a group, a bigger group of human beings to do something. And, um, so, you know, that's one of the reasons I like working on teams that aren't too big is I have the opportunity to, um, you know, to kind of do more things. Um, but yeah, for me, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's that weird, like satisfying, but also incredibly frustrating, right? Like when I, I really like doing multiple things and trying to maintain multiple skill sets, but then of course I have friends or coworkers who kind of focus on a, a smaller area and, you know, they're more amazing at those things than I am. And, you know, part of me is like, why can't I just you should do that because look how much better they are than, <laughs> than you are at that thing, you know? And, and, yeah, um, yeah. um, but I think I do a pretty good job being uh, at least decent at a few different things. Um, but it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's hard, you know, it's hard. Like there's that side, but then, um, uh, you know, but yeah, it's, it's nice. It's nice having the opportunity to be able to kind of do multiple things as well. Um, it keeps, yeah. keeps things fresher, you know, you don't get burnt out. Yeah, I think the diversity almost is something that people will crave eventually because, like you said, if you do one thing consistently for long enough, it will eventually just, um, unless you're doing something new with the medium, then it will eventually grain on you that you want to try and expand beyond your horizons. I mean, I know for Scott, again, when he talked, he was talking about, you know, making some of the more funny illustrations at the time or the more comical stuff was bringing him away from the industry because at the time, I think specifically, he was talking about working on Brutal Legend, right, when a lot of the stuff was, like, dark and mysterious and, you know, gothic or whatever, you know, and then he was doing these kind of funny illustrations at home because it was, you know, the balance where he wasn't feeling so down all the time about making this stuff that was so, you know, dark or whatever. But, yeah, I think it's one of these things you naturally look outside of yourself for because you want to um, almost play in that place, um, you know, because for me, I think art is a play or playful experience that you want to feel like you're playing during it and not that you're working and i mm -hmm. think that's sometimes where the balance in this industry can be off where when art meets industry right and you have an art industry that's when people become downtrodden or feel empty because they're taking the industry is taking that part of them away do you feel like that's something you're constantly fighting against yeah i think that's fair i think that's true uh, something artists always go through and i think i do fight it even though double finding is pretty accommodating for it, you know, I do fight it in the sense that I'm, as I mentioned earlier, I tend to be very, uh, efficiency minded and, mm. um, very process oriented. And I, and I try to bring that organization and process to a team, but, but a part of me hates that I'm good at it, you know, cause I, I feel like, I feel like it was never like a career goal for me. Right. I just, I just yeah. am naturally pretty good at that sort of thing. And I always try and solve problems to just keep things moving forward. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I, yeah, but you know, I do think I sometimes miss out on the creative playfulness that can maybe enrich my work even more. Um, yeah. if I, if I, so I try and keep it in mind, but, uh, you know, at the same time I see what happens when people don't do that. And it's just, you know, it's also just, uh, flights of fantasy that never get on screen and, mm -hmm. uh, then they get stressed out and then ultimately someone steps in and takes control away from them and they get frustrated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like it's, it's tricky either way, but I, I think yeah. being an artist, being an artist is always a struggle. The creative process is always a struggle and there's a different set of struggles when you're doing it as a living. Um, mm. uh, but overall, I, I'd say that uh, everyone who gets to make art for a living is very lucky, myself included. I feel very fortunate all the time. You know, I think about my grandfather working in a coal mine when he was 14 to put food on the table. Oh, wow. And I'm like, yeah. you know what? I am pretty fucking lucky. <laughs> and <laughs> that doesn't mean we shouldn't, you know, push for the industry to be improved or more humane. Like, absolutely. Like that should be the right of every human being. But, um, yeah. 
I still, I try and keep that in mind, you know, like I'm yeah, so yeah. lucky. I'm so like when I get frustrated or I, I feel burned out, I'm like, you know what, how, you know how lucky you are. Uh, so I try, <laughs> try and keep that in mind. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like it's such a thing just now recently, especially uh, people kind of bringing out videos every other day on YouTube about how they're quitting their job at you know different, you know, industries or they're, they're doing these things where they feel like, oh, I'm downtrodden in this career. And, and again, it's a thing where we're not saying that you need to be stepped on in a job. You need to be obviously respected for what you do. But um, yeah, sometimes I think people need to pinch themselves. And um, I remember we were having a, a conversation when I early on was getting into the industry and you know we we're having a conversation about rates to pay or conditions or holidays or stuff like that and uh rumors from different studios and one of the guys next to me was like you know man we get to make games for a living so it can't be that bad and i'm like you know what yeah i used to dig holes in the ground for a living so i totally understand <laughs> yeah I, I always had to i always had to catch myself i'm like you realize what your job was like five years ago right you realize what you were doing i'm like yeah. oh yeah 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 so um yeah, yeah i think you definitely have to take the rough for this move and, and where this industry will present problems initially because um you're coming up against industry and budgets and time restraints and, and deadlines you still are getting to be creative for a living and that in itself is a blessing i think that um we usually forget about so um yeah, I, I definitely agree with everything you said there. Um, so yeah, um, I'm kind of at the point where I think um, we've had an awesome talk. I've really enjoyed everything we've talked about. I think it's been incredible. You've gave some really amazing answers to everything I've kind of thrown at you. And I thank you for that, Lee. It was really awesome to um, just take an hour of your time to just talk about life and art in general. And uh, what have you kind of got planned for the rest of the day? I think you said you're working from home, right? Yeah, uh, I'm working from home today, which is a, a, a kind of a rare treat, but uh, it's nice. Yeah, so I'm I'm in my studio and I'm working on some new things for the studio. Cool. So, nice, nice. Yeah. cool, awesome, Be cool. cool. Yeah, yeah, cool, man. Well, again, thank you for coming on and uh, taking the time to speak to us. It was uh, it was really amazing, and um, and yeah, just uh, hope you have a, an awesome rest of the day. Um, if you guys want to leave any comments or questions for Lee, um, chuck them in the, the down below part of the YouTube machine. Um, if you're listening on a podcast service, of course, you can reach out to us via email. You'll find that in the description. And uh, I'll also post in Lee's social media accounts and anything he's wanting to link to as well. You can either get in touch or, or appreciate his art from, from wherever uh, he posts it up. And uh, my thanks again to Lee for coming on and you guys for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll catch you again in the in the next episode. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks. <laughs>